Section twelve of the King of Alsander by James Elroy Flecker. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter twelve in which the beetles crawl. But solid beetles crawled about the chilly hearth and naked floor. James Thompson, author of The City of Dreadful Night, popularly ascribed to Mr. Kipling. All preparations for this most surprising conspiracy were to be ready, so Arnolfo gave Norman to understand, on the following afternoon, and Norman, doubting his senses, and still doubting the seriousness of Arnolfo, rose early and came to the appointed place, which was again the British consulate, before the appointed time. After a few minutes there came to greet him, not Arnolfo, but Sforelli, a gentleman who would have looked heroic in a burnous beside the ruins of Palmyra, but seemed merely intellectual and rather repulsive in a morning coat. He handed Norman a letter, sealed with what Norman knew to be Arnolfo's seal. It ran as follows. Dear Norman, everything is going well. Please put yourself entirely in the hands of Dr. Sforelli, the bearer of this, who has full instructions from the Society. I am so busy, I may not see you again till you are crowned. Arnolfo. Norman, looking at the Palestinian profile before him, felt that the spring had left the year. The gay youth, with his wit and plots and disguises, would make anyone believe, or even do anything. While this worthy... The transition from Greece eastwards was overpowering. Yet one could see this swarthy, powerful person was to be trusted, more to be trusted than Arnolfo. Norman burst into a flood of practical questions. We shall just walk there, came the answer to Norman's first batch of inquiries. I often go to the palace, as I live quite near in the square. I have a dissecting room there. My wife objects to having corpses in the house. Dissecting? In Alsander? Yes, replied the doctor in hollow tones. It was expensive getting corpses in pickle from Paris, so I advertised in the Sentiaro, the little local paper you may have seen, the one that hints so broadly that the king of Alsander is already in the town incognito. But with success, surely, in such a religious country? There was money offered, continued Sforelli, dryly. My door was besieged. I am not sure I was not responsible for murder, even for parricide. Some of those whose near relations were rejected went away in tears. Well, Dr. Sforelli, to the point, this mad central idea you are sure of, that no one has seen the king. But what about the guards? The guards are with us. But why should they be with us? They are sensible men, for one thing. They are very old servants of Arnolfo's, for another. Dimvorza? He has never seen the king, you know that already. And the other notables? All the members of the town council, which is the progressive element in Alsander, 
are with us. For all that, none of them have seen Andrea. But there has been no ceremony. For instance, was Andrea never crowned? Yes, but with little pomp. There was only the bishop there and myself. He was crowned in the empty room. And the bishop? Is fortunately dead. No one lives but myself who saw that mock coronation and a small acolyte who is now one of the most able young men of our party. The people were kept outside, but I remember they applauded nonetheless. But the only person who was really impressed was the king himself. It meant a great deal to him, that shabby ceremonial. What has given the king that antique form of speech? Pursued Norman. Before his mind left him, he had as a boy read one book, that of Maxo. Ah, a great book, cried Norman. There is real fire in his tales of chivalry. And poetry too, added Sforelli. Of no inconsiderable merit. Well, you know how the greatness of Cradenda is ever being sung therein. And ever since the boy, as he has heard but little human speech about him, has had faint echoes of the immortal language of Maxo trickling through his brain. One hardly realised he was so young, said Norman, with a sudden pity. He is your age, replied Sforelli. Is there no hope of cure? None, said the doctor, decisively. None? on my professional honour. His delusions come from mental weakness, not from aberration. I might cure a man who has wandered from the road of reason, but not one who has never taken it. So saying, they started for the palace, on foot, as Forelli advised, to attract less attention. You are still determined not to have Andrea killed? inquired Sforelli. That I prohibit absolutely, said Norman, speaking with authority for the first time. Sforelli bowed with some irony. Fortunately, he said, there is a small asylum outside the town under my supervision. How are we to get him there? pursued Norman. I think of drugging him and then driving him there myself to-night. It will not be difficult. I'll have your word. You intend to do this, and to do no more than drug him? Although I consider that this humanitarian project of yours is fraught with great danger to our plans, you may trust me, said Sforelli quietly and Norman believed the man could be trusted for all his antipathetic ugliness. He inquired, And what am I to do while you do this? I am afraid the safest plan will be for you to stay alone in the castle overnight, pending my return. It may be rather disagreeable and lonely for you, especially as you may naturally feel nervous on the eve of our great coup, but I see nothing else for it. 
I must take the king to the asylum myself. It is not safe that any of our friends should either take charge of the madman or bear you company in the castle, for obvious reasons. I cannot be back much before dawn. When I return, I shall send an official note to Vorsa and explain, by your royal request, that the young English nobleman who visited him the other day is none other than the cured king of Alsander. I shall add that you have returned to the palace and desire to have the news kept secret for the present, except from him and a few other notables. I shall further explain that you desired to remain a few days incognito in Alsander from a natural desire of seeing things as they are. You will send, written in your own hand at the same time, a command to your well-beloved and trusted servant Count Forza to appear at such an hour and similar intimations though not in your royal hand together with injunctions to secrecy will be sent to other notables of alsander this letter will be sealed by you with the royal seal of alsander which is in my possession when the time comes you will have to play your part with the utmost care and even if you recognize some of the visitors as being members of the society and fellow conspirators do not cease acting for a moment i will tell you the story to which you must hold and to which you must so to speak mentally refer when in difficulty i will tell it you to-morrow morning when i return in the palace in great detail so that your memory will be fresh for the day but for the present so as to get your mind accustomed to it note that its outline is roughly this you have been cured in england mind you and your mind is almost a blank for everything before that save that you have vague reminiscences of maxo's poems and a father and a mother you had an operation, trepanning, and so forth. But it's too unconvincing, scientifically. Scientists are sure to arrive and ask questions. Scientifically, it will be as correct as a story by your own Mr. Wells, when I have given you all the details, and I will answer the scientists myself above all avoid being too explanatory nothing causes suspicion to arise so much as the volunteering of convincing information thus conversing they arrived at the palace gate it was already dark and not a soul stirred in the palace square two guards saluted them at the doorway norman recognized one with a shudder and one with surprise. One was the flagellator, the other the overworked clerk from the British consulate. Two further guards, rising from their seats on the inner side of the gate, followed them in silence across the moonlit garden. The jasmine was fragrant. The doctor opened a little door. Norman passed, once again, into the curious corridor 
and thence into the throne room. It was lit by many candles, and was very hot. Everything was there, as on his last visit. Plaster cupids, broken divans, songerie, the old chair of Credenda, and the madman, looking as unreal as his surroundings, a part of the fantastic picture, glimmering in the dim light. The king, however, though still robed in ermine and cloth of gold, was without his crown, and there was one further change. Everything, except the king, had been washed. Even by the faint illumination this was perceptible. The candelabra shone, the fat thighs of the plaster cherubs were as white as life. Even the remote and secret windows let through an undimmed sun. The king startled the silence. Oh, thou leech! he cried. Where is my crown? It is being repaired, said Sforelli with a bow. I have brought you back, Sir Norman, as I promised. You have been long absent, sir, though your king was in need of you. What have you achieved all these long days? Sire, said Norman, I have slain three dragons, a red, a yellow, and a green, and all with horns upon their tails. But my dragon, said the king impressively, you have not slain and to-night i must meet my queen thy queen sire said sforelli in evident surprise even so that will be impossible unless the enchanter is slain then he must be slain at once said the king with resolution exactly and that is why i have brought this good knight but your majesty must drink a draught to protect you against enchantment this last time i will obey you to obtain deliverance i am sick of your potions but beware if he is not slain in time for the arrival of that paragon of the world my queen i will i will the king frowned and hesitated to find words terrible enough i will cut off all your toes and thread them in a necklace and hang them round your neck he said in triumph bring the cup said sforelli to one of the guards who immediately produced a rose-coloured liquid in a tumbler, which he handed to the king off a salver with some ceremony. The king immediately drank it. The four men waited in silence, as a happy smile began to play over the royal features, and he sank quietly asleep. The two guards then stripped him of his state robes and muffled him up in a greatcoat, and, followed by the doctor and Norman, took him out to the castle gate, where a closed carriage was waiting, and placed him inside. The doctor turned to Norman. I wonder what that was about his queen. It's quite a new delusion, and startled me. Some stir of spring in him, perhaps, said Norman. Well, it's of little matter. We'll find out at the asylum. 
He will be better off there than here in many ways. It's cleaner, and he will have more fresh air. He is an interesting subject. Now, my unfortunate friend, as we arranged, you must wait in this place, I am afraid, till I return, which will not be till near on dawn, for there is still much to do. As I said, I am afraid you will be lonely. I think you had better not show yourself out of this wing of the castle, and the guards cannot keep you company, as they must stay at the gate. However, you will find a library, rather technical, perhaps, in my dissecting-room. A couch has been prepared there, too, and I have not forgotten tobacco. No, continued the doctor, in response to a nervous look in Norman's face. There is nothing there but books and implements. And the doctor, with this assurance, drove off with his capture. On the way the lunatic began to recover from the effects of the drug. He sat in the carriage, now opening and now shutting an eye, and once mumbling some words about his queen. Finally he went to sleep again. The doctor had but little parley at the diminutive asylum, a doll's house of a construction which he had built, and now managed. He ran it, indeed, at considerable profit, for the paying patients, offshoots of the noble families, considerably outnumbered such pauper inmates as he admitted free. He explained to the trusty guardian the deplorable delusions of the patient, and ordered certain comforts to be given him. You might also get him shaved, he added. The guardian, who was a conspirator also, thoroughly understood the whole business. And there we can leave the doctor, and return to Norman, who by no means enjoyed the situation. He could not find the books in the dissecting room of much interest. He was wandering in the throne room, which looked more ghastly than ever, now the guards had extinguished the candles, in the flickering shadow of the lamp he carried, when he found several scraps of paper on the throne itself. These were covered with intricate designs and meaningless arabesques. There was a wing, there a face, there a foot, there an emblem, all incoherent and messed round with wild scratches. The bits of paper had so fearsome a fascination that it was almost a relief to Norman to go back to the dissecting room and sit down and try to read a treatise on skin diseases. But long before he had mastered the difficult subject, Norman was on foot again, restless and troubled. The window was barred. Andrea had slept here sometimes. The night was close. He sighed for the young, strong arms that might have been round his neck. The conspiracy seemed already to be enclosing him in an impenetrable net. As immeasurable time wore on, the fishy eyes of Andrea haunted him. He would not sleep inside the bed, a sorry and comfortless pallet, which might have been the madman's. He lay down on it, dressed as he was, flinging off only his collar. Sleep would not come, save for fitful visions. Rising again, he saw his face, pallid in the looking-glass, by the light of the dingy candle, which flickered in a gorgeous stand of beaten copper. He blew the candle out hurriedly, then groped for matches, and lit it again, and flung himself once more onto the couch. A fitful slumber was descending over him, prelude to sweet sleep. 
when he heard footsteps, with a tapping noise and the sound of voices. One voice was a man's, there were two other voices of women. Norman leapt from the bed, alert, and listened hard. "'He won't hurt you, Drakina,' said one voice. "'He kissed me many a time, and I don't know what he might not have done if Maxello had not been there.' A confused giggle was all the reply Norman could hear. "'Where is he, Mousebreeder?' said another girl's voice. Hello, said the voice of the man, apparently called Maxello. "'He seems to have gone away.' the room's empty that's strange perhaps he's gone to bed said a girl he can't have he never goes to bed as early as this we have played with him night after night he loves it doesn't he masbrita when i do it <laughs> more giggles then the voice of drakina was heard saying she was frightened andrea cried Maxello. They all shouted. There was no reply. Let's go and look for him in the corridors. How strange. He was dreadfully excited about his queen. He mustn't be disappointed. I'm frightened, said Drakina. I don't want to be his queen. You who wanted so to be in the real king's arms, what a little coward you are. But the corridors are so dark. Is he very dreadful to look at, Mousebreeder? He's not so ugly as you, Clubfoot. Nothing like. There was a shuffling and tapping into the corridors. Norman listened with wonder and disgust. Not quite realising the meaning of the conversation, he had nevertheless understood enough to feel like a prisoner whose cell is full of rats. What nameless rebels had these beings held? The nocturnal visits of these creatures were evidently unknown to Dr. Sferelli. Here were three people who knew the king by sight. If this unexpected difficulty were not disposed of, the whole plot was ruined. At all events, time must be gained. They must not be led to imagine the king already gone. What should he do? He had a second to deliberate while they went into the throne room, but had made no plan when he heard them outside his door. "'Then he must be in his bedroom,' said the man, and went over to open the door. "'Why, it's locked!' "'Perhaps the doctor did it,' said the club-foot girl. "'Let's burst it in.' "'I daren't disobey the doctor,' said the man. "'That doctor's a devil. Why must he pretend the king's away?' "'For God's sake, don't tell a soul!' Andrea, your queen. He must be sound asleep, or drugged, said a woman. Let's go and look in through the window, said the voice, which Norman had by now identified as that of Malsprita. We might get a look at him at all events. Always my luck, just the night I came. Well, we'll do that for you, said the man pompously. He led them round outside. The clubfoot girl continued moaning. I was born crooked and ugly, and crooked and ugly I shall die, and I might have been happy just once. And still complaining, she passed out of earshot with the rest. Norman covered his head with a sheet, and crouched beneath the window, waiting. He heard the shuffle and tap coming along the gravel outside. Why, the bar's out, said the club-foot girl, 
and she poked her hideous head right through the window. It was a face neither of man nor woman, nor yet of utter evil, but rather of incarnate brutishness. It had no features but a mouth. It was a flat and fleshy face. In frenzy, Norman rose, emitting a falsetto shriek, extremely piercing and horrible, by which he frightened even himself, and dealt a terrific blow at the head with the great candlestick. By a surprisingly swift move, the woman, if woman it was, avoided the bar, receiving the blow on her arm. She uttered a piercing shriek, more ghastly still, and the three intruders rushed away into darkness. Losing for the first time in his life all self-control, Norman kept on shouting and at the same time banged the candlestick against a tin basin, producing a desolating boom. Then he became quiet, relit the candle, and with a book in his hand, which he hardly read, now dozing, now awakening with a start if a leaf rustled or a mouse ran over the floor, stayed in his chair till he could endure it no longer, and fled out into the open air. The doctor on his return, as he came with one of the guards through the entrance gate, discovered Norman in the grey of dawn, pacing the ruined garden, and shivering with cold. He was much troubled when he heard the story. I have been vilely negligent, and I ought to be ashamed of myself for forgetting the fellow, he said. He was a sort of nurse to Andrea. I thought him too stupid and too frightened of me to do harm, and as he is not supposed to come here at night, I had postponed dealing with him till to-day. And turning to the guard at his side, he bade him arrest the three persons concerned, and keep them in close custody in the old keep. Forget all that unpleasantness now, sir, he continued, and I beg of you to attend to more serious topics. The letters addressing an invitation to the notable people in the town to come and felicitate you on your cure are now ready and waiting for you to sign them. The said notables should be here this afternoon. You will receive them here in military uniform. And what shall I say to them? You have only told me the story of myself. How shall I greet them? That, sir, is for you to decide. We rely on you. You must rely on yourself. End of chapter 12